so that we can move on with the next part of our event this morning, and that's to hear from our speaker. Uh, but before we do that, just a couple of things. I want to say I'm here in this capacity because Eric Stevens isn't here with us. Uh, Eric, you know, recently graciously agreed to take over the leadership. He couldn't be with us this morning, so uh, I'm your stand-in. And also, you'll notice we got several of our brethren who aren't in the room. Their Sunday school class is on a retreat this weekend, the CUC class, and so that's that's where those guys are. So they're gone with their wives and each other, so we'll keep them in our prayers. Um, and in case I don't get to say it again, ever in my life, George is number one. Right? <laughs> 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 and I really am afraid of that. So but before we get to our speaker, and, and actually uh, Alan Kennedy is going to introduce, introduce our speaker, but before that, Barney has an opportunity for us to serve that he wants to share with us. So, Barney, take your time. Man, I have uh, several opportunities for us uh, on some home mission. The first is that we will use this, this time together as a platform next time, December 7th, to do a, about a two-hour project, we need to change out a lot of harmed ceiling powers, tiles, and I need about six or eight volunteers to help me out with that project. I'm going to have a sign-up sheet over on the table as you leave, let me know who you are and whether you're willing for a couple hours uh, so that I can contact you with details. Secondly, uh, Roswell has and owns uh, and operates a home stretch facility as part of the home stretch uh, homing uh, project for the Corps. Um, and our facility became vacant yesterday, has to be renovated one month from today. I need volunteers to help out with those renovations. Uh, I'll have details and scope of work within the next few days. Um, thirdly, uh, Richard Lowenthal is putting together a work team within the next several weeks to go to Savannah to help out with hurricane damage, and we need to be volunteering and thinking about that. Those are the three opportunities, one of which will be a month from today. The next one I'll have word out in the next couple of days. So I need some help in making these things happen on behalf of our UMCM and our work in the community. This will be over on the table. Thank you, Barney. And I'll add to that, Eric Stevens created an email that comes out as well as a text that comes out to remind you about the breakfast, and I'll just say uh, responding to that email would also be a good enough way for you to say I'm interested in helping with the projects that Barney talked about this morning. My contact information is on there as well. All right, so Alan, will you come and introduce our speaker for this morning? <coughs> on behalf of Eric, I apologize to the Georgia Tech and all the fans. <laughs> We're still state champ. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> what can I say? Um, I've known Sam since uh, Sam Lewis, and I hope most of you probably know Sam. Sam's only been a member here for about 35 years. Uh, his wife is on staff here. How long is Jeannie on staff here? 15 years. Uh, they both now work at Nebraska. Uh, uh, nepotism rules do not apply there, apparently. So it works out well. Um, I've had the privilege of, of walking um, part of Sam's life's journey with him. And his story, I think you're going to find quite profound. Um, like a lot of us in our, in our lives, he's fought demons, and he has come through. Um, he has come through with the grace of our Lord, uh, a loving family, good friends, a beautiful spouse. Uh, and I think Sam's going to give us a lesson this morning that we can not only use in our own lives, but take out to share with those that we care about and that we love and that we know can benefit from that. Sam, come on up. Thank you, Alan. 
I want to open with just a brief devotional from Jesus Calling. And if you have never Amen. seen or read this, I highly encourage you to get a copy of it. It's one of the greatest devotional guides I've ever found. And this just happens to be from November the 8th. It's, it's just one that means a lot to me, and I just wanted to share it this morning. Learn to appreciate difficult days. Be stimulated by the challenges you encounter along your way. As you journey through rough terrain with me, gain confidence from your knowledge that together we can handle anything. This knowledge is comprised of three parts. Your relationship with me, promises in the Bible, and past experiences of coping successfully during hard times. Look back on your life and see how I've helped you through difficult days. If you are tempted to think, yes, but that was then and this is now, remember who I am. Although you and your circumstances may change dramatically, I remain the same throughout time and eternity. This is the basis for your confidence. In my presence, you live and move and have your being. <clears throat> when Eric asked me to speak at this gathering uh, several weeks ago, I immediately said, sure. And part of the reason for that was <clears throat> I like to get up and talk. And, and I like to share my story when it's appropriate. <clears throat> and um, I asked him, I said, well, you know, when are you, what date or time frame are you looking at? And he said, well, I really need somebody for November 2nd. And this was like two weeks ago. And I said, okay, that's great. Because November 1st, I had already signed up to do the choir devotional last night. And he said, well, that'd be good. You can warm up at choir practice and then uh, bring us some more for the morning session. Uh, a little bit of history about me. I joined the Methodist Church at the age of probably seven or eight. I had two older sisters, and I'm confident that my mother convinced the pastor of our church in Charleston, South Carolina, that it would be a great idea for her to have three of her children confirmed all at the same time. And uh, so, obviously, I went through confirmation as a real youngster, you know, got my Bible and all that good stuff. Uh, I've been a lifelong member of the United Methodist, well, Methodist Church and then United Methodist Church, singing in choir since I was three years old. I was actively involved in the youth program at Oak Grove United Methodist Church in Decatur and participated as a leader of the, uh, I was the president of the youth choir for several years. And back in the good old days, we used to take 70 or 80 high schoolers on choir tour every June. Um, and it was a fantastic experience and, and especially wonderful for me because my mom and dad were choir parents, so we got to experience a lot of those things together. Uh, I've participated in leadership roles here at Roswell for the last 20 plus years or so. From the outside, <clears throat> all appears good. Very active in the church, a good Christian man, had a great job with Bell South, successful by most measures, happily married with wonderful children. Now for the real story. I'm Sam Lewis, a recovering alcoholic for 10 years and one day. That's why I shared the devotional last night, because yesterday was my 10th birthday in AA world. I lived my life for many years behind a veil. Yes, I was successful by many measures. Yes, I was a good Christian man, caring for family, caring for aging family and friends, but I was not a happy man, even though I had a facade that convinced others that I was happy. 
Alcohol had consumed my life and my very being. I stopped drinking in 1989 until 1996, seven years, because I thought I drank too much. But I never associated myself as being an alcoholic. I just thought, I drink too much, I'm going to give it up, so I did. Well, in 96, things happened, and, you know, it was a beautiful setting out by the swimming pool that we had put in our backyard, <coughs> and I thought, okay, I'm wiser, I'm older, I'm more mature, I can do this, I can have a drink or two. Well, my friends, it took 11 years to find out I can't take a drink or two. <coughs> and Halloween of 2007 was my last hurrah. Let me tell you about that day. That morning I went to an oral surgeon and had a tooth extracted. And when he was finishing up, I asked the doctor, I said, now, are you going to give me some pain, pain meds? And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, good, because I think I might need it. And uh, I said, you know, I think pain meds usually say that you really shouldn't take those pills along with alcohol. I said, but I've got a long-standing tradition on Halloween. I like to give out candy and sip on my scotch. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, well, you can have a little. Just don't go overboard. This alcoholic heard that doctor say, you can drink on Halloween. It's okay. And so I proceeded to do just that. And uh, I probably on the... Well, let me back up. So that night, Jeannie had probably been outside with, we, we set up in our cul-de-sac with a table and had all the neighbors had bowls of candy and we had a little uh, fire pit going, what have you. And uh, at this point in my life and our life, I think she was up to here with Sam and alcohol. And so she was outside for maybe a half hour, an hour, and she went on in the house. Well, I proceeded to go in the house to fill up my red solo cup of ice, fill it up with scotch, go back outside with my neighbors. And probably on the 6th or 7th or 12th, I have no idea how many times I had gone inside. <clears throat> but at one of those points, I had filled it up, turned to go back outside. She met me with some, well, we'll just say she called me some names that were not very becoming <clears throat> of anyone. Uh, and she gave me a big uppercut into the cup, not to my face. Uh, so it went flying. I shouted a few things back to her. She went back to the bedroom and slammed the door. I picked up the ice cubes off the floor, threw them in the sink, didn't worry about the scotch, went back to the freezer, loaded my cup up, poured it up, and went back out. Probably, I don't know, one or two o'clock in the morning, I finally found my way back in the house. And being the wise man that I was, I went upstairs to a guest bedroom. The next morning, I had a tap on my shoulder, and I rolled over, and she said, I'm leaving you. I said, okay. I rolled back over. She tapped me again. She said, I don't think you understood me. And I said, what? She said, I am leaving you. I said, okay. Roll that code. Several hours later, when I finally came to, I started thinking, maybe I should quit drinking. Now, there was this little voice that had been bouncing around in my head probably for, mm, I don't know, five years, six years of that 11. that said, you know, you really have gone overboard. You really need to give it up. But I couldn't. So she left, and uh, several hours later, I called her. And I said, well, are you in Atlanta yet? Because I knew very well that she, if she was leaving me, she was going to head back to Roswell. And she said, no. And I said, where are you? And she, she was not even to Columbia. 
And she had stopped and got some breakfast and was just sitting in her car thinking about life and wondering if I would call. And uh, she wanted to know if I wanted to talk, and I said, well, I really don't have anything to talk about. And so she motored on to Atlanta. Well, somewhere probably along the way, if not, I'm sure she probably called you while she was driving. But anyway, she made contact with Alan, and they talked. And um, <clears throat> Alan was concerned about me detoxing without any assistance because Alan knew he knew a fair amount about my drinking habits. And, um, you know, I have some heart issues. I've got 14 stents in my heart, so uh, for some reason God keeps finding a way to keep me around. Um, but anyway, uh, she talked to Alan, and, and then she called me and said, you know, Alan really feels like you need to go get checked out. Uh, because you may need some help. <clears throat> so I contacted the local center in Charleston and made an appointment, I think, for the next day, which happened to be on Sunday. So Jeannie drove back to Charleston because Alan suggested she should be a part of that process. And I can tell you, I know full well that she was thinking they're going to put me in there and keep me for at least 30 days, if not 90. Well, I answered all their questions truthfully and honestly. They took all my vitals and all was well. And they said, well, just stay the course, don't drink, you should be okay. And I know she was disappointed from the, by that, because I think she really felt like at that point I needed some serious professional help, you know, in getting through this. And uh, so then she started encouraging me to go to AA meetings. And I said, Jeannie, I quit, you know, 96, or from 89 to 96. I said, I did, I've done this before for seven years. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, did you stay quit? So off to AAO I went. Um, <clears throat> I, I probably did AA for, I don't know, three or four years, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed speaker meetings. Uh, because in those sessions, you would have, every week, you have a different person get up and share their story. And I can tell you that, by and large, uh, all of our stories are the same. When I say our, I'm talking alcoholics. Uh, they're very similar. Because we're, we are a messed up group of people and have a lot of the same issues. Um, but the reason I enjoyed the speaker meetings is about half the time speakers would have you in stitches because their stories were so hilarious, but yet serious. The other half of the time the speakers would have you in tears because it, they get nerves that were very close to home. Um, and, I, and so I did that for, for a period of time. Um, don't get me wrong, I think AA is a wonderful organization and it helps many, many people. I just have some things that AA and I this whole thing of the higher power, I, I prefer to think of God and Jesus Christ as that higher power, but AA tries to, they're not trying to, they just try to keep it on a level where a non-believer can still associate and understand. So whatever it takes for somebody to feel like they do have a higher power in their life, you know, if it works that you've got a tree in your front yard that's your higher power, more power to you. Uh, whatever it takes to get you through. Um, and I will tell you that I break a lot of the rules for AA. Um, you know, they say when you're, when you are trying to become sober and stay sober, you know, you need to change your playground and your, and your playmates. Well, yeah, I don't hang out in bars, uh, but basically I still hang out with the same people. Um, when we, when I first quit, we went out to dinner with some good friends of ours, and historically when we went out, I was already half toast or full toast. And then we'd get to dinner, and I'd order a couple of cocktails, and then we'd order you know, a bottle of wine or two bottles of wine or whatever. So I'd probably been off the juice for, I don't know, a week or ten days, and we went out to dinner with this couple. 
And the waiter came over and said, what would you like to drink? Can I get you a beverage? Ice water, ice water, ice water, ice water. I was like, this is weird. <laughs> so, but I didn't say anything. You know, I just went on because I thought, okay, they're, they're trying to show support for me, and I appreciate that, whatever. And that night we got home, and I told Jeannie, I said, you know, that, I was very uncomfortable in that situation. It was totally out of the norm. And she says, well, you know, we want to support you and not drink it. I said, look, I have the problem. I'm the one that needs to deal with my problem, and I don't expect the world around me to change because I have a problem. And so, you know, we kind of cleared the air, and so the next time we went out to dinner with them, everybody was back to normal, and it's fine. I get the ice water with lime or lemon in it, and, uh, and it's all good. So, you know, that's kind of a, a piece of that. Now, as I was in that first stage of, of sobriety, I'll tell you, the first two years of, of sobriety for me were hell. You know, most people describe hell as a total absence of God. I will tell you, God was not absent from my life. You hear that static? Yeah. Well, we there was a lot of static on the line. <clears throat> and occasionally I could hear what he was saying, and I hope maybe occasionally he heard what I was begging for. Uh, but anyway, it was a very difficult time. And so Jeannie and I muddled through the first three or four months. Um, and then finally she got to the point where she was like, I, I can't do this. Well, <clears throat> most of that was because of me and the way I was acting in, my, in this new world that I was trying to live in. Uh, there, were, there was a time I, I basically got to the point where I didn't care about anything or anybody. As far as I was concerned, I was well because I didn't drink anymore. But I'm here, I'm here to tell you, folks, I was a messed up human being. Um, we separated for probably, I don't even know. She could tell you exactly, but it's probably a year and a half, maybe two years. So she came back to Roswell. I stayed in Charleston. Our youngest daughter was still in med school in Charleston at the time, so I at least had a little bit of family connection still there with me. <clears throat> I had gone to work for a funeral home, which was a job I dearly loved. Um, that in and of itself can be a ministry, so I'll just share that with you. Uh, but anyway, I was working at a funeral one day, and you know, we we had taken the casket in, and uh, we'd go outside and hang out for 20 or 30 minutes while the service went on, and then go back in and do what we needed to do. <clears throat> but it, as we were taking this casket down the aisle, my phone was vibrating. So when I got back outside, I checked it and had a voicemail. It was Gene. <clears throat> She'd been in a car accident here. I was in Charleston. God slapped me upside the head and said, you, you need to go home. <clears throat> so I called Mike Grant. Everybody here knows Michael Grant, right? I called Mikey and I said, Mike, Jeannie's been in a wreck. Can you go to North Fulton and check on things and let me know? So <clears throat> that was my epiphany when I finally figured out it was time to go put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I'm grateful to God and I'm grateful to my wife for leaving that door open. <clears throat> we went through counseling for several years. She had obviously been going to counseling while I was still in Charleston. And she was working on issues with codependency. So when I came back, we started seeing Boyd Whaley as a couple. And Boyd shared with us, I, let me just tell you, Boyd's one of the most fabulous counselors when it comes to addiction, codependency, and those types of issues. He, he's one. He's a Methodist minister. He uh, operates out of the uh, North Fulton community. I forget. Anyways, they operate out of Birmingham, Methodist, and Mount Carmel. But anyway, so we saw Boyd uh, on a fairly frequent basis. 
working through issues and involving the children and the whole thing because you know alcoholism is not just a me problem. Alcoholism is a family. There's a lot of family dynamics that go on within that whole situation. Um, but anyway, we did therapy for you know, several years. And during that time, after you know, I had been meeting with him for like about a year, he actually told us, he said, you know, when I first met Sam, I didn't give this marriage much chance for surviving. And there were things about me and my personality and the way I deal with things. Because I, <clears throat> if there was conflict, I, I used to, I would use hum, try to use humor to deflect it. Um, and he hit me square in the face with that. And, you know, Jeannie had shared with me about the same kind of thing. And so, you know, once I realized that and started trying to address things as a man, uh, it kind of changed things. So anyway, during this process, you know, he had shared with us that he had had these thoughts like a year prior that he did, he really didn't see how it would work. And then it was probably another year or so when he finally told us, he said, you know, I've been really struggling trying to figure out what it is about the two of you that has held you together through all of this. He said, I'm just, I'm, you know, I've been trying to figure out what that common thread or what the linkage is and whatever. And he finally told us, he said, you know, I think I figured out what, what the common thread is that keeps y'all together, keeps you going. <clears throat> he said that it was your involvement in music at Rockwell University. Um, singing has been a part of my life, like I said, since I was three years old, and kind of same for Jeannie. She actually started out as a major, a music major at Weston. Um, and uh, but anyway, music's just been a very important part of our life. And so you know, through the the words that we sing, through the tunes that we sing those words to, um, there's a lot of power in that. And I tell people all the time, uh, Tom Alderman sitting at the or on the organ bench uh, can create some of the greatest worship moments for me that I ever experienced. I mean, there are some Sundays that by the time he finishes the prelude, I could say amen and get up and leave, and I, I've had worship. Uh, but anyway, the point being that you know we had that common linkage, and so I'm proud to say that we you know we survived, and uh, in a couple of weeks we'll celebrate 38 years of marriage. And as I like to tell people, 36 good ones, and I take the blame for the two that weren't so good. So uh, that's kind of where things are. Uh, I could spend hours sharing more crazy stories about all this, um, but I'm going to do something a little different because I want to leave you with something that maybe uh, can help. And this is a chair. I'm no artist, but that is a chair. <laughs> so, I'll call it, this to me is like the three circles of life is the way I like to refer to it. Yeah. When we're born, in theory we're lost, we're dependent on our parents and others to take care of us. But we live, we live in this circle for some number of years, whether it was when you were 7 years old, 12 years old, 30 years old, when you, <clears throat> when you finally understood Christ. And in this case, so basically our world is self, family, and Christ is kind of out here. We don't know that, know that yet. And then we get to a phase of acceptance. That point in time where you finally learned more about Christ, understood Christ, and accepted him into your life. At that point then, you're still sitting in the chair in charge of your life, but Christ has become a part of that. And, and during this phase, you know, we, we go to him when we need him, and you know, he's with us, but kind of there. 
This gotta go back to my notes. Except and then this is I call when we allow Christ to really control our life. He's now in the in the chair. We're at his feet. And this is this is when we accept Jesus as our I'll say Savior here. That point of acceptance where you accept Jesus as your Savior. This is where we finally get to the point of, of total submission. And he's not only our soul, Savior, but he is our Lord. The Lord of our life. And friends, I'm here to tell you, for me, get, finally getting to this point in life is the most freeing thing I've ever had. Uh, and I, you know, I'll admit, I'm not here all the time, although I should be. And I think you can probably look at this and, and see where you are on this spectrum. I'm going to go ahead and assume that we're all at least at this point, and many probably are here. But I think too many times in our life we, we vacillate between those two. And so this, getting to this point and realizing that I'm not in charge, he's in charge. And I can tell you, having lost a job about two years ago, so let me back up. You know, I did the funeral home thing in Charleston. I had a painting business for a while, came back to Roswell did some painting here, finally decided one day that I really needed to grow up and get back into the big boy jobs because I, I needed more structure to my life. <clears throat> and so um, when I went in search of a, an opportunity, uh, Peachtree City United Methodist Church popped up. At that point in time, I knew Steve Dodson had been appointed there like a year prior. So I thought, okay, God's got to have his hand in this one. I applied for the job, ended up getting the job, and uh, spent 18 months working in Peachtree City, four days a week, 57 miles each way. Absolutely loved every minute of it. Never regretted one mile of that commute. In fact, I've told Steve, I've told his mom and dad, that <clears throat> I had 33 years with Bell South. I've had other jobs. The best 18 months of my entire working career were the 18 months that I spent in Peachtree City with Steve Dodds. The only reason I left there was because uh, my wife sent me a, an email that had a job posting for John's Creek United Methodist Church. And she just forwarded it to me and put a note, in case you ever thought of working on the north side. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought about it, and then you know, I was like, well, no, I'm not really interested in changing jobs. And then all of a sudden I started thinking, well, what if the bishop were to move Steve Dotson? That commute to Peachtree City wouldn't be so fun, right? So I thought, it doesn't cost me a nickel to e you know, send my resume via email. So I did. I went and interviewed. I think I was the ninth person they interviewed. And Dee Shelnut, who was senior pastor at the time, told me after he had hired me, he said, yeah, we interviewed nine people for this job. And he said, until you walked in the room and started talking, I was concerned that we were ever going to find anybody that would work. But anyway, I was there for two and a half years, and then uh, through a little downsizing initiative, I was part of the see you later. And when I found myself in that position, I'll tell you, you know, I wasn't happy because for one, that was the first time in my entire life that I lost a job, and it wasn't because of something I, you know, a change I wanted to make. It was a change somebody else decided. Alan can tell you, I mean, I, I probably survived at least three or four major downsizings at Bell South over, during that 33 years I was there. Um, so, you know, I was used to you know, going through the grind and 
coming out on the side where I was still employed, but to be called into a room and said, uh, you know, your job here is done, and I said, well, you know, what kind of time frame are we talking about? This was on a Wednesday, and they said, well, we're thinking you need to be cleared out by Friday. Okay. So I, I went in and packed my stuff Thursday and didn't show up Friday. But anyway, uh, so, so I went through this period of about I don't know, four or five months of unemployment. Uh, I will admit Jeannie was a little concerned. I think she was concerned that I, I needed something to do and I needed to get back on the payroll somewhere and that kind of thing. But during that time, I had absolutely no concern at all because I was convinced that God had a plan for my life. And that plan could have been, I was almost 62 years old at the, when this happened, so one part of that plan could have been that I started drawing Social Security and, you know, just trying to survive. Um, but I felt like there was there was something else that he wanted me to be doing. And then the job at Mount Pisgah came available, and I applied for that and happily employed there for the last year and a half. So, uh, life is good. God's been good to me. Um I'm happy to entertain any questions you may have. Um, oh, in closing, I meant to say this earlier, but in closing, I'll just throw this one at you. Um, statistics would tell us one in seven Americans are an alcoholic or have, an al- have al- alcohol abuse issues. One in seven. You do that. Um, part of the reason I... I like having the opportunity to share my story is the fact that I want people to be aware. It's not so much that I want them to know about my craziness. It's more that I want them to know that I've been down a path that many people have have gone down, and there are many, many people out there who are trying to find their way to that pathway. Um, And so I want all of you to know I'm a resource. If you ever have someone, whether it's yourself, a uh, friend, loved one, whatever. Um, if they, if you just have someone that you feel like would, would, it would benefit to spend a few minutes with a recovering alcoholic just to kind of talk about that journey, I'm happy to be the one. Um, because, like I said, that you know the first two years were just they were hell, uh, but through counseling, through a supportive family, through friends like Alan Kennedy, Eric Stevens. When I was living in Charleston, separated from my wife, um, Alan, Eric, Malone Dodson, and a handful of other people stayed in touch with me. Malone would call me maybe once a month, maybe once every six or eight weeks, whatever. But Malone would call just to let me know he loved me and that he loved Jeannie and that he just was praying for us. So that, (laughs) my friends, is what has helped get me through to be able to stand here and say... I'm happy to be alive. My medical doctor, uh, I'd probably been off the juice for well, six weeks or six months, whatever, and I was in for just a routine checkup, and I made a comment to him I'd quit drinking. He said, well, Sam, how much did you drink you know, before, when you, before you quit? Oh, yeah, I didn't show this real. I will now. Uh, <clears throat> a normal day in my life was from about, mm, say, 10 o'clock or noon, somewhere in there, it was time for beer. And I would drink, on an average day, 12 to 15 beers between noon and 5 o'clock. And by 5 o'clock, I was getting a little bloated. probably imagine that, right? <laughs> and so, around 5 o'clock, it would be time to swap over. And if it was fall or winter, it was scotch and ice. 
if it was spring or summer, it was vodka. And it waved the tonic water over the top of the cup and some good squeeze of lime, and I'm off to, go, you know, to the races. So when I've got far, far enough away from alcohol, to, to be honest with myself, I, I can tell you that I was probably drinking, let's just call it a 12-pack of beer, and at least a half a pint, if not a pint, of liquor. Hey. This doctor told me, he said, Sam, drinking like that, you were within months, if not weeks, of death. Jeannie and I were just reflecting <clears throat> the other day, actually on Halloween, we were talking. I'm amazed I didn't die that night. I heard a yell over here from the doc. Because uh, seriously, that, that night, if I didn't drink a quart of scotch, I didn't drink a drop. Okay? And, I might add, I was taking paint beds to go with it. Do I think there's a God? I know there's a God. He saved my life, and I thank you for it. Thank you for this opportunity. If you've got questions, I'm happy to entertain them. Otherwise, I think we're getting close to the hour of finishing it. Hey, yes, sir. Y'all better follow him. Tell him. <laughs> this is it, it, every day, and I will admit here lately I've had a lot going on at work, and I've been a little bit remiss. But part of my daily worship when I'm on when I'm on track with that is. But anyway, part of my daily worship is just reading this, and a lot of times that's all I need to do because it, I mean, it's just the title of the book, Jesus Calling, is by Sarah Young. But every every day it is Jesus speaking, and the reading of the one I picked for today obviously was just one that's special to me. But I can tell you, every day the readings in here are special, and it just it's a constant reminder of how much we need Jesus in our lives and how, how we can't do it without him. So, thank you very much. God bless.